Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, the brilliant Cam Lee Small is with us. You may know him from his online presence at Therapy Redeemed on Instagram or on Facebook. Um, I believe you can also check out his website, therapyredeemed.com. All that will be linked in the show notes below. Uh, Cam is an adult adoptee and a uh, therapist and is just an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable person. So uh, we knew we liked his work. We knew we admired his uh, content from a distance on um, Instagram and on Facebook and just was impressed with the work he was doing, but we could not have been more impressed after meeting him in person and having the conversation that we're going to share with you today. So I know you'll feel the same. If you are a parent, this is a must-listen episode. Um, if you are an adoptive parent, it's a double must-listen episode. But Cam is amazing. You're going to love him. Here he is now, Cam Lee Small. Well, as I mentioned in the opening, we are here with Cam Lee Small. You can find him on Instagram at Therapy Redeemed. Uh, and Cam has been kind enough to give us some time today. And so we're, uh, man, we're so grateful for you uh, jumping on with us. Um, Tana is also here with us, Tana Ottinger. And so, uh, Cam, why don't we jump right in for people who are not familiar with your work or, or what you do? Do you mind giving us a quick overview of, of kind of um, what your private practice looks like and, and uh, who you are? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here. I think the, the movement right now is how can we give adoptees a place to speak? How can we share the microphone with them? And how can we elevate their stories and their perspectives in a way that informs all of our practices, just either as friends, family members, maybe even clinicians, professionals. Um, so this is just very uh, awesome to be a part of. Uh, me personally, I was born in South Korea, and I was relinquished for adoption when I was about three years old, and then placed into a white family in Wisconsin, and then raised there. And throughout my life, you know, of course, experiencing lots of different questions about who am I, identity, birth, family, culture, um, on quite a journey. And then I was eventually able to meet my birth mom in Korea in 2012, and during that trip, talking with some other adoptees and really realizing that we are certainly not a monolith. Everyone is on at their own location in their journey. And I had actually just gotten done meeting with my birth mother. And this uh, one particular person was sharing with me that, wow, I've been searching for my dad for almost 10 years. And I just feel like my life would be um, so much more complete if I could just find him. Um, and for me, it, the dilemma was because I had just met my mom like the day before, essentially, and I was still holding a lot of questions, even some grief. I was like, wow, that might happen. And I'm rooting for you. At the same time, I think this might be a lifelong kind of thing we're tapping yeah. into here. So yeah. I think for me, I started asking, what can I do personally and professionally mm -hmm. to walk with adoptees wherever they are in that kind of a story. There's no right or wrong place to be. But I think being able to know that we're not alone is so important um, into, in the healing process. But then I kind of think about that sort of survivor's mission kind of idea that what can I do using my story to help others? And so that's where I'm at right now. I serve as a licensed professional clinical counselor based here in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. And all of my services are online. 
Mm-hmm. I provide one-on-one counseling, family counseling, virtual workshops for adoptive parents. Um, right now, I'm launching a teen group. I launched a, a teen adoptee group over the summer. We got to hang out on Zoom. That was pretty cool. Play some games and have some real talk. And I'm, I got another season coming up at the end of this month, September. And really just kind of looking forward to, to the next season. I'm open to, um, you know, getting into conversations like this. and kind of exploring what's next for me here. But that's where I'm at right now and really happy to be here with you all. Great. I've enjoyed just watching your voice in the space that you hold and the things, you know, as an adoptive parent, having that identity, Cam, I so appreciate just what you even invite us to consider and think about and the way that you hold that space. So um, I'd love for you just to dive in. One of the things we were talking about before we started recording was how you will often integrate some of like what's going on in sort of current events and thinking about how that is impacting, you know, different communities that hold multiple different identities. And so I'd love for you just to dive in right there. What are kind of what's on your mind right now? What do you feel like is being talked about? And um, yeah, what do you, you think is important for us to be thinking about? Yeah, I think right now in my work, a major theme has been helping and walking with adoptees who are trying to get some genuine conversations going with their parents or even extended family members, potentially even spouses and in-laws. And even with, you know, in-laws, that might be a tricky word or just kind of like a, a, a tough dynamic to navigate. But the main idea is how can I show these values that I have as a person in general and then as an adoptee and kind of share that or communicate that with those who are important to me. Um, And so, you know, whether it's with teens or young adults, especially in the past year and a half or two years, you know, at the time of this recording here, talking about COVID-19, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, different shootings, anti-Asian racism. um, A lot of folks on my caseload, they want their parents to know that this has an impact on me. And I don't know exactly how to talk about it, but can we? And there are a lot of disagreements within a family system, as probably every listener here knows. And it's hard for everyone to get on the same page 100%. But as a mental health provider, I see too many families um, just disconnecting. Or we're just going to stop talking. Just Hmm. we're done. You know, estrangement. Um, I think there's a better way. I don't know the the full answer, but that's what we work together towards right now. That's a big theme um, in my practice right now. You know, Kim, I think that uh, for a lot of our our listeners, I mean, whether they themselves find themselves holding a lot of different um, identity questions or whether they are, you know, parents or caregivers to those who do, I think one of the things you might be wondering is kind of what, what are my first steps into these um, hard places? Some, some of us hand raised, like my default before doing any kind of personal work and going through therapy years ago was just to run from it, right? Like I wanted to run from hard conversations, make jokes out of it, make other people not feel weird around me um, when that was not always the healthiest thing. So for some of us who wanted to, to, to jump into these hard conversations and really start to navigate them either with loved ones or for our own sake, how can we get started with some of those conversations? The first thing that comes to my mind here, and we talk a lot in my, in my practice about, is being willing to name it. And I really appreciate your sense of humility to even admit that, hey, this is really big stuff. I'd rather run away from it, watch Netflix, eat ice cream all day. That sounds a lot easier than have a conversation about race. Um, 
And for listeners here, I mean, if you're an adoptive parent or if you're a clinician or if, yeah, just even a person, I think doing some kind of work to get comfortable naming that this is a thing. Um, racism does exist or race exists to an extent where being colorblind no longer serves us and it might yeah. no longer serve the people. So it doesn't serve the people under our care anymore. Right. Maybe it's had a function back then when the yeah. term first kind of came about, but right now we need to start seeing how our children, our family members, our colleagues, our coworkers experience the world when they walk out the door of their apartment and their house. So just being able to name it is a big first step. The second thing is going into conversations for me personally with that posture of learning and listening. What can I hear from this person's story that's going to be important for us to connect? Because I want to care for these people. I want to know how important they are. I better just kind of listen in and maybe ask questions. I don't want my first, even though we might disagree, because that happens and that is normal and safe and healthy. Um, even if, and even when we disagree, gosh, I want to learn from this person. I, I truly believe every person, when we have a conversation, we can learn. So those are the big first steps. We can go into it more. Um, but those are the big things, especially for parents and family members to go into those conversations with that kind of um, listening posture. It's funny, Cam, I don't know if you've listened to other episodes, but JD has confessed um, a, a, an issue with eating pints of ice cream and not ever skipped. <laughs> you probably that know, but I think you may. Sorry, I have to just say that real quick. I think you may have just like prophetically named actually JD's biggest scoping strategy. I mean, hey, so me too. JD's I love it. Vulnerable. The beginning of COVID, I, I, I had these thoughts every night like, oh my gosh, when I go to bed, I'm basically back at work the next day. So I'm going to make this, I'm going to savor these moments the most I possibly can. And that mm. is when I am defenseless against ice cream if it's in ice the freezer. Cream. So it was binging the wire and uh, eating ice cream was my early COVID, mm-hmm. uh, COVID mechanism. <laughs> Um, okay. So back to, I did actually have a, a follow-up thought or question. Um, I so appreciate you saying that we need to name it. And so in the spirit of transparency, you know, I'm, I'm going to be looking at what you're saying through the eyes of an adoptive parent, especially right now. I have four children that are um, of Asian descent that are in our family. And so I'm thinking about what happens inside of me when, you know, my kids come to me and they are experiencing pain outside of the comfort of our family and it's impacting them. And I can't do a damn thing about it. Like Mm. I can't make it stop hurting them. And, Mm. you know, it's hard to think about like, what does it mean from what there's so much work that I have to do to stay present in that moment so that I can hear from them in that place because I can't fix it. So I don't know if you've got thoughts or reflections about that. That's what was going on in my mind is this invitation to listen, but to also name there's, there's, I'm hurting right now because my kid's hurting and I, as a parent, want to protect them and, and I can't protect them from that mm-hmm. pain. Do you mm-hmm. have thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah. In those types of moments, I think about those types of like attachment terms where our children are putting out a bid for connection. Yep. And what do I do as a caregiver to meet that need, to provide for that need? I personally don't think that always comes natural. And I, I agree. I, I, I agree. I will be the first to admit yep. as a father here, I don't just 
comfort my child, especially like when they're crying or if it's been a long day and maybe their need, it looks um, loud or they're rolling around on the floor, right? That's tough. So for me, I I think asking for help, giving myself the grace to ask others for help um, and admit that I can't do this on my own, that's Mm -hmm. a breath of fresh air right there. Because I put too much standard on myself as a parent that you got to be this certain way. And then, you know what? I feel really guilty actually afterwards. I might raise my voice to my child um, or just I might say the wrong thing and it just doesn't feel good. Um, Now, in, in terms of like, wow my child has experienced some kind of a pain and now they're coming um, back to into the circle of care. Um, me as a parent, I'm trying to reflect on um, what do they need in this moment to, to feel safe? And there's, uh, there's a, a manual online called Developmental Repair by Dr. Ann Geraghty. And there's a quote in there that talks about attachment isn't about love at first sight. It's about the idea that within the context of our relationship, um, we can feel good. We can regulate our emotions. There's this idea of called co-regulation. Um, so I personally, doing a lot of work as a parent, if my goal right now is to be present and to be calm and to be a soothing um, warmth for them, what do I need to do? Does that mean taking some deep breaths in through my nose, out through my mouth? Does it mean getting down to their level, sit on the floor with them? Does it mean we both might need a hug right now? Um, but being mindful uh, about that beforehand and then in the moment trying to catch myself um, has been life-changing for me. Because if I'm just going automatic with my gut feelings, I, I end up in some pretty um, probably unsafe places, some dark thoughts. So it takes conscious effort to really provide that for my children and then not feeling guilty afterwards when I didn't, when I fell short of perfection. Right. Yeah. I love that, that, that bid for connection. Like I, I feel like we, we talk a lot about if, if a kiddo is coming to us, especially if it's a transracial adoption situation and you've got white parents and children of color mm-hmm. and, and they risk like, you know, kicking that door open a little bit or, or knocking on that door. I mean, that is like sacred ground right there. And, mm-hmm. and to stay present and to validate and empathize with their lived experiences. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've got any more thoughts about just as parents, how we can, you know, continue those conversations or, you know, if you're holding space for an adoptee and you're sort of wishing in your heart and mind that parents might do something differently, you know, oh, I wish these parents would were, you know, what, how would you fill in that blank? What is your desire for the parents that might be listening to do for their kids or with their kids? And do you have any reflections on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think about... Um, anxiety being the body's response to a future threat, like I'm worried something's going to happen or I'm worried that something that I want to happen won't happen. Um, Maybe sometimes depression is the body's response to a past threat. Something happened to me at school today or something happened and I haven't been able to share with you about it. Um, The -hmm. way that caregivers can model for their children um, just daily practice, like the norm, the atmosphere, the environment in this family, in this household, mm-hmm. is that we can talk about our feelings, like emotion expression, emotion identification. And this is a norm for us. Um, that's one piece that comes to mind, modeling for our children, that, that kind of thing. And then, um, especially when it comes to transracial adoption or transracial parenting, that 
it's not going to be this sort of singular one and done conversation that happens at 3.45 p.m. today and then we're done. Mm. Um, You know, how can we make this sort of like like an ongoing discussion slash dialogue that can mature or it can unfold over time. We can add to it. And the things that I think about or, or feel about today, we have permission to change our mind and have different or additional feelings over time. And so we can revisit that. But we don't need, I, I think there's this um, between formal and informal conversations. It doesn't need to be uh, like an interrogation every day with prompts and discussion questions but just in passing we might respond to something we heard on the radio or the tv or whatever um just very casually and um and i was just talking with someone this morning that uh, you know to maintain confidentiality here just had an unexpected very pleasant um longer conversation with their adoptive parents they didn't plan to have this this is just happening out of the blue and they ended up talking for like maybe an hour or so and saying some things and disclosing some some things about their adoption journey that that this first time the the adoptive parents are hearing about this and there's a connection there right and they're learning about one another and i think that we got to be open to that as well as being intentional about how can i provide this kind of like on a daily ongoing kind of basis man i i love that and i was gonna kind of like stick down that path a little bit. One of the things that um, Dr. Charles McKinney, who's a civil rights historian here in Memphis, uh, one of the things that he said in our second episode ever um, was he said, just remember, you know, it's not your kid's job to educate you on race. And he said, Google mm. is your friend. He said, you don't, when, when there's all these issues happening, for example, with, um, we interviewed him shortly after George Floyd had been killed. And he's like, it's not every black friend's responsibility to teach you about racism in America. Like there's books for that. So Mm. I I wonder if you have thoughts as an adoptee on that line for parents of making sure they're educated versus making sure they're also there emotionally, like hearing Mm. and and feeling for you without burdening you with the weight of education. Do you have any thoughts on, on kind of how to, navigate through that or um, even some resources that you might want to recommend to parents along the way. Absolutely. And I, even in, in, in hearing you talk there, JD, there's a negotiation between putting in the work myself as a caregiver to do the research and yeah. then also becoming a student of my child, mm-hmm. this person in my family who I love. I want to hear from them. How did you experience that? Yeah. Gosh, what did that feel like for you? And, um, you know, kind of something that comes up for me. So, yes, resources, you can go online. Yeah, I love that. Google is your friend. And I think, so a question, you know, for listeners, um, you know, how, how many books by adoptee authors do you have on your shelf right now? Or how many books by adoptee authors have you read? Um, that's a great place to start. And I can give you all a list afterwards, but um, I think there's there's a lot of emotional labor that adoptees generations past and even currently are putting out there into the world. And what an opportunity it is. I mean, with tech right now, with a, a ton of internet, we can just go yeah. or read these books or maybe they're at your library, right? Yeah. Um, so doing that. And then, yeah, I mean, I remember with, with my parents, I actually didn't want to talk to them about this yeah. stuff, especially when I was a teenager, because I didn't have the, the words to say, to articulate yeah. my experiences. I didn't really even know what it was I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as an adult, I remember this one time that um, 
I was getting my car repaired. My dad came with me to, to help talk to the mechanic. And one of the other customers kind of looked at me and said, hey, you look like Lucy Lou. And I'm an, an adult, a grown man, and there with my white dad. And like in a situation like that, yep. um, we have a lot to process there together. And, and my dad um, chose to say something back to that customer and that kind of shut things down right away. And then we took some time to process that together when we got home. Um, what was that like for you, Cam? What were you feeling kind of thing? Um, and I've had other adoptees, you know, they get called, uh, for example, China doll, you know, or something at the grocery store. Yeah. And then maybe there's this sort of processing time afterwards. It can be the same day or at some point afterwards, but just checking in with your, you with your kiddo. What was that like for you? What they said, uh, that might've felt kind of strange or yeah, what came up for you in that moment? And you don't have to be a professional counselor to just ask them, Hey, how did that make you feel? Yeah. Or what are you feeling right now? I noticed you're really quiet after that. Um, so there's both, I'm going to kind of do my own research, the history of anti-Asian racism or anti-Black racism, just the historical context of adoption, perhaps. I'm going to do all of that on my end to the extent that I can as a, just an imperfect person. And I'm going to listen in to my child's story. And I'm going to take that into account. I'm going to be informed by my child to the extent they're comfortable telling me. And I'm going to do what I can to help them feel comfortable telling me. I think that's great. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, I felt that in my soul when you said you didn't want to talk uh, growing up very often. And and that was, I mean, I, I'm a biological son of my parents and I didn't want to talk either as a teenager. I didn't want to talk to them at all, hardly. And they were great people, you know. I, and so I think I, I sometimes, you know, I think as adoptive parents, we can play mind games with ourselves. Like, oh, it's not talking. And I bet it's because I didn't ask the right question. I, you know, I don't want to think this, 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 or this. I think it's good to remember sometimes there are uh, just moments as as people that we need to be able to hold to ourselves until we know how we feel about something or to or to process. Um, mm. Are are there things reflecting back that you think, man, not not like specific to your story? Oh, I wish my parents would have done this. But are there things that you think, you know, for for our kids who tend to tend to be more um, reserved and and not open books who just chatter away all the time, uh, ways to enter into those conversations or to or to even just make sure that they know the door is open um, that you I mean that you would counsel on you know in that in that situation. Well, hold on, let me <laughs> situation. Uh-huh. <laughs> you went you you stuck, got it stuck there, JD. Uh, there's a police chase happening outside of our window right now. So I kind of okay. looked look over like, oh, God, okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so for our kids who might be a little bit more reserved, um, are there ways that you would counsel parents to kind of either help mm-hmm. ease in the conversation or even just make sure they know the door is open uh, whenever that, that kiddo might be ready? I even just like what you said, like where can I just let my kid know that, Hey, such and such happened today. You might not want to talk about it, but just want to let you know I'm here for you if you ever want to. Yeah, something simple like that. Um, and then to go uh, a little bit further into maybe the adoption piece, um, I remember there being a photo album in my home that had pictures of the day that I arrived in Chicago um, as an adoptee, and pictures of uh, you know the car ride home and just family and all of that. Um, that was accessible to me from day one, right? And it was something that I was able to go look at. I always enjoyed seeing these pictures together. 
and my parents would sit down with me and we have kind of like a chance for me to make meaning of my own story and to explore it, even ask questions about it. And I think if that's going to be sort of like um, available, if that door is always open from day one, then we can just build on that. And that's a kind of a collaborative storytelling, meaning-making idea in our, in our family. Um, giving grace to my birth family, or just in general, I'd say, um, for adoptive parents, how can you speak about birth family in a way that when I meet my mom later on in life, or if I do, I have this sort of like trail of blessings, this trail of strengths-based language of a human not a villain, and we haven't dehumanized them in a way, but a real person with all of their complexities and ups and downs that that's who I'm meeting right now, not this sort of like static two-dimensional character um, from this story. So how can we make that available for our children? JD, I had one quick thought when you asked something of Cam, and I did ask permission to share. I don't often share, but um, just to sort of put a point on just opening the door, naming and making meaning of an experience. Um, right when COVID was flaring up, uh, one of our kiddos that is Asian had to stay home from school and went back to school and was sick but didn't have COVID. And on the way to school, I was like, hey, honey, I just feel like I need to say this, but like you, somebody might say something racist to you today about COVID just because you were homesick and like, just, you know, put your feelers up. And if it happens, I'm here if you want to process it, but like, it just might happen today. And you know what? It did happen that day. And that was the first thing that ha- that was stated when they walked in, mom, it happened. You said it might happen. It happened. And so I know we can't always get ahead of like naming, but, but just s- sort of showing that, you know, mom and dad are here with you and, and just, awake enough, alert enough, Mm. paying attention enough to know that this is not, it might happen, you know, and, and it did, it did happen to them. And you know what, we talked about it again, just last week, because it's still lingering there. And so I, I think so much of of parenting in general is Kim, you said something that is a phrase I always think about making meaning. Like all of us are constantly trying to make meaning of our experiences or our past or our situation. And so even having language in a home where that is a shared value Mm. (laughs) that, Hey, mom and dad are still trying to make meaning of some of our own experiences. So making meaning is something we do as people, as human beings, we make meaning this isn't something that's uniquely yours because you've had X, Y, and Z trauma. While that is true, we don't want to dismiss that. Mm-hmm. Making meaning meaning is a normal family practice. And so how do you start that when they're little, curious about what's going on or being curious with them about what could be causing them to be struggling or, you know, just setting the tone for making meaning of behavior and experiences, I think is, is so, I, I'm not saying I do it right at all, please. Mm-hmm. Let's not even pretend that's true. I'm just giving you like one moment that I can think of this week where, you know, it was brought back up. Um, and, and honestly, you know, what was happening in me when I was driving, I was scared. I was like, oh, I bet somebody's going to say something, you know, stinky. But instead of just holding that in my own head, I like gave that kid the opportunity to know mom's thinking about this as we're driving to school. So I don't know, that brings up any additional reflections, but mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly important. Speak it out loud. Yeah. Say it. <laughs> Name Absolutely. it. Absolutely. 
Um, and that reminds me of there's this idea that suffering can come at us from outside. And there's like a um, suffering happens within us too. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, we might be at school and I really appreciate how you went in on the front end. And in a sense, just kind of like give them an umbrella. It might rain today. Here's an umbrella and just mm-hmm. want you to be prepared for that. Um, and then when like he came back, he actually felt comfortable to meet with you and make that shared meeting. Um, so there's like, how can we teach our children, um, equip them with skills to respond to things that aren't necessarily under their control. We want to do that. So give them the internal um, skills. At the same time, how can we maybe even make it a shared value that we advocate to reduce that out there in the world as a family? We make the actual community actually safe and they see us doing that on a daily basis. I mean, that's, I think that's huge, right? We're not just going to talk about it, but like, we're going to partner with you in in creating some Mm. systemic change, you know? So if you've got thoughts or feelings about that, we can definitely go there for the next few minutes. Like, what does that look like? And what do you wish was different? Or, um, you know, do you have any input? There's a whole lot of it needed. (laughs) Systemic change. Yeah. And and this so, is the next like five minutes. Could we solve that problem? We've got like five minutes. You want to do that? <laughs> Let's just solve it right now. Real quick. Just real quick. Like. Truth is revealed. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I think about the Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems map where it's essentially like, it looks like a target, like some circles, right? And in, in the center of the circle is that child. And then you've got the family, the community, neighborhood, and then the chrono system, which is like the passage of time. Um, I think that, you know, steps that we're taking to help make the community um, actually safe. And I, I love that word partner, because when I'm working with a teacher or when I'm working with a counselor or other clinicians talk about wraparound services or when I'm working with um, people who are drafting policy legislation, we're not enemies here. We're trying not to be enemies here. We're going after the right. same thing. Right. We want our children to be safe. How can we work together to help this happen? Are there... Um, ways or steps that we can help address um, maybe the person at school who said that? Is there documentation? Is it Has it been the same person? Is it random? Um, can we talk to a grown-up? You know, we give our, our kids kind of like the quote-unquote little plan or a little safety plan. Like, well, you know, who can you talk to when that happens? What are some um, options that you have there? And then, yeah, maybe partnering with teachers um, to, to ask, you know, how can we keep our finger on the pulse here of what's going on. I know that you don't have a, a thousand eyes in the back of your head, but when it, or if it does happen, how can we make that conversation available to maybe just the school culture, for, for example, that that's not really acceptable. We, we don't really do that here. And how can, how can we make it take a step toward that? And then of course, yes, partnering with different people and leaders in the community um, mm-hmm. to really raise awareness and communicate out mm-hmm. what is unacceptable and maybe consequences for when um, people do engage in that kind of behavior. It's really good. Hey, uh, before we before we wrap up here today, I would love to give you a chance to talk. Um, on your website right now, your registration's open for fall, um, for parent workshops, adoptive parent workshops that you do called Fireside. Oh, campfire workshops, sorry. Yep, campfire, campfire you got workshop. it. Would you mind telling us about that? And for those that might want to jump into those, how can they sign up and why should they sign up? 
Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. Um, essentially, the idea for me is that um, community is so important. Um, community without information might be a little aimless. We're just, you know, get together, fine, we eat some chips and dip. Um, information without community is I've got all the books, but I'm struggling here. <laughs> As a parent, I've got no one to talk to. No one really understands. People understand suffering, sure. And who can I meet with who understands just life, the daily life, the daily grind of being an adoptive caregiver? So I want to put those two together, community and information, where um, we meet online. It, it We meet online every other week for, for 12 weeks, and we get together and we talk about um, the throes of parenting, transracial adoption, and I'm coming in from my clinical perspective, as well as an adoptee. And we do discussions, we engage in dialogue, there are learning objectives each week, um, topics like, um, yeah, trauma, attachment, race, identity, birth search, um, adoptees, lived experiences, adult adoption, um, all of those things together, asking questions and holding space for everyone's stories. And again, the main point is connecting with other parents. I'm, I'm not alone. And I personally, yeah, I think on my website, I'd say something like, trying to remember, but adoptees weren't designed to do this alone or to walk this road alone. I don't think their parents were either. So just helping adoptive parents get that sense of universality that, wow, we're not alone. Let's talk about these things together. That's so good. That's so good. So you can go to therapyredeem.wordpress.com to sign up for those. Um, they, they kick off in September. Is that right? Yep. I have uh, one cohort starting uh, at the end of the month in September, or two cohorts, actually. And then I do these um, once per season, so they can look out. I'll have dates released for wintertime soon. Awesome. Awesome. Ken, thanks so much for your time today and for all that you shared. Um, I hope you do know that coming on once means that you've got to come on again at some point now and like be uh, with us again at a different time. And so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk offline about that. But um, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Pleasure to be here, y'all. Thank you so much. Well, if this was your first interaction with Cam, uh, you know he is. You're probably blown away at this moment. We were as well. Um, but as I mentioned in the open, we have long at ETC admired his work from a distance and um, tracked along with what he was working on and things he was speaking to, and and just been a, a big fan of him from a distance. But uh, we could not be more impressed and um, excited about uh, the future with Cam and his work and um, just beginning a friendship with him. Um, just a, a brilliant guy again. And um, whatever you hope he is like after listening to that interview, uh, I can assure you that from our conversation offline and just interacting with him some, um, he's, he's everything that you hope he is. So uh, if you are needing to see someone um, therapeutically, if you're wanting to jump into the campfire conversations that he mentioned, um, all those things can be found on his website, which is linked um, in the show notes, or you can follow him on Instagram uh, or Facebook for more information on that at Therapy Redeemed. So again, a huge thank you to Cam and just a, a huge thank you to all of you for sticking with us, tuning in. We have gotten so much positive feedback um, from you guys over the last few weeks and um, these episodes. And uh, we just, uh, again, we're humbled. Uh, we'll also say, man, the 
we are just getting started. So uh, stick with us. This fall has got just an incredible lineup. We are going to have uh, a bunch of new stuff coming at you, and we are so excited for you to hear it. Um, thanks for rocking with us so far. If you have not had a chance to uh, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, please, please definitely do that. It helps us to be found in um, the algorithms in those places and will help us to be able to get the message uh, of hope and healing from ETC out to as many people as could possibly need it. So uh, for Mo and Tana Ottinger, for everybody at the ETC team, for Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, and Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind ETC. I am J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.